Hi and hello Watchfans and welcome to another edition of Fratello On Air. Today I am joined in the studio by Yuli Snadan's ambassador, professional freediver, Fred Boyle. How are you Fred? Uh, hello Rob, I'm uh, very fine. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, it's always very interesting for us to talk to the people behind the brand collaborations that we read so much about on Fratello. So this is actually the first time I've ever spoken to a professional freediver, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it, because of course, it's a very interesting topic for our readers. We write about dive watches all the time, but I guess the vast majority of those of us that wear them don't actually dive with them. So it'll be great to hear exactly what kind of pressures your body is put under and what you demand of your equipment when you when you do go under the water. So what is it that got you in to watches initially? Let's start with that topic, because I believe that you were a watch fan before the collaboration with Yulis Nadan. Yes, since I'm a kid and, and somehow since I started diving and getting interested into diving and free diving, I, I loved watches because when I was a kid, I, I started getting interested in, in diving and free diving by looking at books. And, uh, you know, in the 70s, uh, all the books with divers, they are all the equipment. And for me, it seems that the, the easiest piece of equipment to get uh, beside the, the mask and the snorkel was the watch. And uh, back then, it was very important to have a dive watch because there was no dive computers. So I always liked watches. And my father had uh, Omega Seamaster Chronostop. And sometime he was lending me his watch for a few hours uh, so I could play uh, the diver, you know. So uh, I always been interested into that. And then uh, when I was a teenager, uh, I remember with uh, some of my pocket money and uh, the, the, the money I was earning with my small job, I bought uh, Citizen Aqualand, the, the first watch with a depth gauge in it. That was like uh, alien technology back then. <laughs> and uh, with my first real salary, I bought myself a, a Zodiac chronograph, a diving chronograph. I remember I still have that watch somewhere in the box. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, I, was, I was from time to time buying a watch. And, uh, of course, always a diving watch. Uh, so I still have like a WC Cousteau, uh, an Omega Seamaster, a more recent one. And uh, so, yeah, always been um, interested into that. And the funny thing is that I prefer an analogic watch when I dive because I like to watch the, um, the second hand uh, moving because for me, it gives me um, a clear picture of the time elapsing. It's much more concrete than looking at the digital uh, numbers on a, on a crystal display. Uh, for me, the, the, the hand moving really materialized the time for me. So I always prefer to have an analog dive watch when possible. That is a fascinating thing to hear and really heartening as well. Of course, most of us are analog fans as well, although we do have many digital watches in our collections. It's just great to know that there's actually a, a real physical reason why you might prefer that. I, I don't know like uh, exactly what other information you need to be displayed immediately on your wrist via your dive computer when you're when you're down there but it's great that there's a, a practical reason to still have a mechanical analog dive watch yes but of course when we dive we like to have the depth as well and when you're a scuba diver the, the diving computer gives you much more information it's much easier to use a computer than uh, the, the classic 
uh, watch depth meter and, and dive tables uh, thing. That's like really old school now. Um, but when I free dive, I'm, nowadays I'm not really going very deep. I'm not competing. So I don't need to have all these informations. And when I dive for my work now, which is mainly underwater photography, uh, I mean, most of the time between zero and 30, 35 meters. Uh, it sounds deep, but for me, these depths are, are totally managed. So I know where I am. So I don't need the depth meter anymore. Uh, it's mostly the time. I need the time to, to gauge the time during my dive. And the most important for me is to check the time between two free dives. Usually I leave between two and a half and three minutes. And an analog dive watch is perfect for that because I, I look at the second hand when I'm breathing at the surface and I can see uh, the time uh, remaining before the next dive. So it's very visual for me. And sometimes I take a dive computer uh, from very specific uh, dives, but I would say 80 to 90% of the time I use uh, an analog uh, classic automatic dive watch. Well, that is amazing that you actually dive without a dive computer and are able to get everything you need from just your environment and your awareness of it. So one question for our, I think for our listeners benefit. So you mentioned scuba diving and obviously you're a free diver um, by profession. So what is the, uh, what does free diving really mean? Exactly how exposed are you to the elements and what kind of equipment do you take with you other than the watch and the mask? Anything? Yes, free diving is you dive with very minimal equipment. Um, usually, you have a, a dive suit, wetsuit that's adapted to where you are. Uh, I mean, if it's a very cold water, it's a thick wetsuit. If it's uh, warm water, it's a very thin wetsuit, uh, so more comfortable. Uh, then you have a pair of fins. Usually, uh, free diving fins are longer. Uh, we use uh, fiberglass or carbon blades, uh, very mm -hmm. light and long. Uh, so you, you can go uh, fast uh, without burning much energy. Um, and then uh, mask, snorkel, and uh, in my case, uh, the camera, of course. Of course. Uh, but the equipment is minimal uh, compared to a scuba diver. Is it very cold when you go down to those depths? Like, Do you notice the temperature change very, very quickly and very noticeably? So it depends where you dive, but uh, in some places you feel the difference, uh, the temperature difference uh, between the surface and the bottom. Um, uh, for example, like tropical waters, usually the, the temperature is mostly the same, uh, I would say down to 30 or 40 meters. Uh, but, uh, for example, in Mediterranean Sea, usually in summer, the, the surface temperature down to, I would say 20, 25 meters is very warm. You have like 24, 25 degrees. But once you pass that, you can have uh, what we call a thermocline, uh, which is a, a very abrupt, uh, change of temperature. And usually below 30, 35 meters, you can have uh, the temperature dropping to 16 degrees. So then you can like physically feel the change of temperature. And in very cold water environment, like in polar waters, so the, the water is cold from the surface to the bottom. Then there's no change. You, you're not surprised by the change of temperature. That's interesting. Thermocline. I've never heard that before. That's crazy. Uh, so in addition to temperature changes and what you're able to feel through your wetsuit and with your body, can you also gauge the depth roughly from like the pressure that is put upon your body? 
Yes, exactly. Uh, for me, that's how I, I kind of gauge the pressure. And of course, you have the light change also. The deeper you go, the less light you have, huh? of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but the pressure on your body is a good uh, indicator. Um, on my side, I know exactly when I'm at uh, between 35 and 40 meters because you have a real change in your physiology because your lungs are compressed below uh, the, 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 the point they can compress. Uh, so you 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 ch you feel it at that time, and I can feel it building up. Um, so it's it's a very accurate. Uh, I can gauge accurately from zero to thirty five, forty meters. And as it's the zone where I'm working uh, most of the time, it's perfect. What's the deepest you've ever dived? Uh, the deepest I went uh, is a, a bit more than a thousand meters, but that was in a submarine, so that doesn't count. <laughs> that counts that counts that's still pretty cool okay okay no but on freediving i went to uh 106 meters good grief um, yeah so that's uh yeah that's deep but nowadays uh the records are much much more deeper uh but uh yeah down there you have pressure you have almost no light uh it's cold uh it's a, it's a very strong experience I can imagine, yeah, it must be almost spiritual, I guess, to be that that far removed from the hustle and bustle of the surface. Yes, there's a lot of uh, psychological sensation, and it's a very psychological sport. Um, at some point, you, you, you're in real, very deep introspection. Um, so you don't really feel the cold, the darkness, everything. It's just an information you, you, your brain gets, but you process it in a, in a very different way. Wow. It sounds just completely alien to me. Like it sounds almost as, as strange as floating through space, to be honest. But what, what does it feel like? Does it, does it hurt to be at that kind of pressure? Is it, is it, is it crushing your, your bones or your, your lungs to the point where you actually feel pain or are you just so into that environment you don't notice? Well, first you're very uh, into the dive, so you don't really feel what's happening out there. But also the body is very well made. There's a lot of physical and physiological adaptations. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the lungs, uh, the, the alveoles in the lungs will fill with plasma, so it provides them to collapse more. Um, also, you have all the blood circulations um, going back to the brain and uh, the very important organs. All the blood from the arms and uh, the legs come back to the center, to the core of the body. Uh, so it, there's a lot of adaptation. It's exactly what happened with marine mammals, and that happens to humans. Um, we we have that this kind of adaptation buried deep down in our uh, system, and when you free dive, it brings them up. Oh, amazing! Well, I I couldn't imagine that that would work for me, but if it's something in all humans, then uh... oh yes, it works for everyone. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I take beginners, and uh, ju just the fact to to dip your face in cold water will slow down your heart rate. Anybody can can do that. You take a bucket of cold water, uh, take a heart rate monitor, and then uh, dip your face in the, the cold water, you'll see the rating go down. That's the first adaptation. It's the, the diving, uh, the mammalian diving reflex. And how long can you actually hold your breath for? Uh, the maximum I could hold my breath back in the days when I was uh, training and competing was seven minutes uh, in a pool without moving. Wow. Okay. I guess that's vastly reduced when you have to move and uh, perform actions under the water. 
Yes, because when you move, you burn more oxygen. Eh? So uh, usually when I work as a photographer and, and doing things like that, my dive are between one and a half and three minutes. Okay, okay. So you can get down to that depth quick enough to have a good period of time shooting. Yes, usually uh, we move at uh, up and down at uh, one meter a second. So if you go to 30 meters, it will take you 30, 35 seconds to go down there. So you still have like one and a half minutes to work or two minutes to work down there and come back. So uh, it gives you plenty of time. And how often do you have to train? I mean, you mentioned that you're not competing um, these days, but was it a full-time job every day in the pool, every day out in the water, in the gym? What kind of things did you do? Uh, when I was competing, yes, it was a full-time job. It was six hours a day, uh, like uh, one hour of stretching in the morning, then uh, two hours in the pool, then eat, sleep, then two hours in the gym, then again in the evening, one and one and a half hour of stretching. But since I stopped competing in 2004, I'm not training at all anymore. I'm spending a lot of time in the water, of course, uh, but I don't do specific training. So just the adaptation of my body and I'm living on the assets, I would say. So do you think um, you have just a natural propensity for this or do you think it's something that you really have just cultivated through years and years of hard work and practice? Yeah, I totally believe anybody can do it. It's just an adaptation. It's like mountaineering. You know, you don't go on uh, the summit of Everest on the first day. You need to adapt. And it's a, it's really an adaptation sport. Uh, and once you've uh, used your body uh, to to get these uh, mammalian diving reflex and and your body is adapted, you keep that uh, for a long period of time. And uh, as soon as you start diving again, it's kick, it kicks back in. And I would say nowadays, even without training, I probably have like eighty percent of the performance, the max performance I had when I was training full time. Well, it's amazing that you've you've been able to retain so much of it. But I guess, like you say, you, you're in the water so frequently as it is. It's not like you're out of practice exactly. I mean. No, I think the key is to 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 keep practicing, uh, if only even a bit, but it's enough to 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 keep the thing uh, going. I would say it's a bit like bicycle, you know, you never really forget. Well, that's interesting. I was going to ask, do you, do you do any other sports? Have you competed in other sports in the past or do you have interests outside of diving that you do to relax? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I was doing other sports. Uh, I did some ice hockey at some point. I was doing fencing. Uh, but I stopped everything when I was 16, 18 to focus on free diving. And uh, of course, when I was competing, I was uh, doing a lot of uh, swimming, a lot of bicycle. In winter, I was spending uh, one and a half months in the mountain uh, for a bit of mountaineering, ski touring and stuff, because it's a very good uh, training for free diving because you work uh, with less oxygen at altitude. Uh, but nowadays, I would say uh, in winter, I do a bit of swimming in the pool uh, just, you know, twice a week. But it's not really to train. It's more to to keep moving. I do a bit of stretching sometime, a bit of bicycle, but very mild and light. I'm not uh, pushing it anymore. I was actually going to ask about swimming because I was thinking to myself, are you are you actually an excellent swimmer as well? Or is it, a, it the disciplines are so far apart, really, I suppose, the attributes that you need to be a diver and a competitive like Olympic style swimmer, but are you, are you a, a great swimmer on the surface as well? No, to be a, a good free diver, you a diver, you don't need to be a good swimmer. Uh, actually, when I was a kid, I was a very bad swimmer, but I was very good with mask and fins. I learned to swim with mask and fins basically. And then after when I competed, I took on seriously swimming and I was swimming with a uh, real, like, uh, swimming athletes and triathletes, uh, in order to, to, 
to enhance the performances. And then I became a, a decent swimmer, not a very good swimmer, but a decent swimmer. Could do 100 meters on, in one minute and three or something. Uh, but um, I've never been a super good swimmer. There you go. That's interesting. That probably wasn't as stupid a, qu- a question as I thought it was when I wrote it for the first time. No, no, no. And sometimes, you know, in free diving course or diving course, we have people, they're very good divers. And then you, you, they're supposed to do like a 200 meters uh, freestyle swimming to get the certification. And a lot of them say, I cannot do it. <gasps> uh, but they've been really good students and very good divers or free divers. So it, it's not really related. I've actually always been a terrible swimmer myself, but I have always had a talent for sinking. So I thought maybe maybe I should try diving. I would be a good diver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps, perhaps. I'd love to try it, but I must admit, it does scare me a little bit. And uh, I was wondering, have you ever got into any serious trouble while diving? Have you had any near misses, encountered some angry sharks, for example? I don't know. Eh, not really. Uh, of course, uh, you know, when you train hard in freediving, you, you, you can get small, uh, you know, blackouts or, or near blackouts and, and things like that. But the safety around it is very good. You have people around you. So uh, I never had like really bad, bad things. Same with uh, animals, with sharks. Uh, there's no dangerous shark. There's only dangerous situation. And we spend so much time with them in the water. We, we can gauge when the situation is not good. Then we just don't go or we get out of the water uh, before it, it's getting too sketchy. Um, so it's, it's a very, it's a sport where you progress very slowly. You, when you go deep, you progress meter by meter. So it takes years. Um, it's not big jumps, you know, you don't jump in the unknown. I would say you, you have the time for your body and mind to adapt to what you do. And uh, that's why people always say freediving is an extreme sport. And for me, it's exactly the opposite uh, because there's nothing that can go wrong that quick that you can be in trouble or die like just straight away. Uh, like, you know, uh, if you do skydiving or the squirrel suit thing <laughs> and uh, even, you know, climbing and things like that. Uh, we don't have that in freediving. Uh, you build up your abilities very slowly. And what do you, what would you say is the most memorable moment you've had beneath the waves? Oh, it's always the encounters with uh, with big animals underwater, you know, whales, sharks, and things like that. A few years ago, um, uh, I was fortunate enough to be in the water for the birth of a sperm whale uh, here near uh, Ominezors. Uh, it was a group of sperm whale, and a uh, mother was giving birth. So that's like incredible moments. Wow, and, and of course, yeah. A few months ago, I was also uh, free diving with blue whales, uh, which is totally incredible. When you know there's like less than there's probably five or six thousand left in the ocean, uh, so that's always uh, amazing moments uh, to be able to to spend time with these animals in the water. Of course, the first time I was in the water with a great white shark, that's also something. And uh, it's all these moments, I would say, the, the, the big animals encounter. I guess with a career as long as yours, you have a lot of memories to look back on. And being a photographer as well, I suppose you've, you've captured some pretty fascinating things. And uh, do you have a favorite photograph that you've taken or are there some that really stick out in your memory because of the situation around their taking? Yeah, the, the, the funny thing with photography, uh, some of the photograph, the, 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 the picture people prefer in my work, it's maybe not the one I prefer because... Uh, for me, it's always difficult to, I, I tried to do my best to, uh, give back the, the situation I was in with a, with a picture. 
but sometimes the, the the moment in the water when it actually happened, it's so strong and emotional for you. It's difficult to to render that in a picture. Uh, and also my picture, I do it mostly for other people. Like for example, at home, I don't have one of my picture on the wall. I, I couldn't put one of my picture on the wall because I have everything in my head. I've seen that all the time. And for me, what I see, it's much better than the picture. Uh, so I have moments that are related to a, a photo session, for example, but usually the best picture is I couldn't take it. <laughs> it's when you, you look at the scene and then you just watch it because you just want to enjoy it. And then you don't, uh, really focus on taking the picture. I think it's quite a good lesson for life, to be honest. I see a lot of people walking around constantly taking selfies and uh, whatnot and missing the things that are happening to them or people at sporting events or concerts and they're not really in the moment. I guess your career and your experiences have taught you the importance of being in the moment and really feeling everything. And I suppose that translates to how you live your life on land? Yes, very much. I mean, when you're a free diver, uh, everything needs to be uh, minimal. Uh, you need to burn less uh, oxygen and everything. So in my daily life, it adds a bit of effect, effect uh, of course. Uh, I have a very uh, simple, quiet life. Uh, I hate equipment, gear. Uh, if I can uh, give away stuff, throw away stuff, I like it. Uh, I prefer to keep it uh, simple. Um, everything I do is, is simple. I try to have less impact, of course, for the environment because with my work, I see what's happening. Uh, I spend a lot of time with scientists. Uh, I read paper for 30 years. I know what's happening to, to our planet. So that's a way also um, it became natural to, to simplify um, everything and try to think about what's really meaningful in terms of environmental impact, uh, what make a big difference. I think that's one of the enjoyments that we all take from the watchmaking hobby as well being more conscious of time and you obviously have these physical experiences of being in the environment in a way that very few people will ever get the chance to to do themselves uh, but your watch collection and your interest in watches as well i think feeds into the same kind of mentality and uh talking about your watches again and what you can see beneath the waves there is uh, always a discussion about the best color dial for a watch and uh, because of wavelengths um, apparently orange is is seen as one of the finest colors. Do you have a, a feeling about that? Does it make any difference to you? Do you have a preference? Mm, I think for me, the most important for a dial to be readable on the water is the contrast. Um, so somehow a black uh, dial with uh, white index and hands works best, or that deep blue uh, dial works very well as well. For me, it's the contrast because you need to be able to see uh, the time uh, just by uh, flicking your watch very quickly. Uh, you don't need much detail. Uh, it's mostly the position on the hand uh, compared to the index uh, that will be important. So the contrast needs to be important. So when you go really deep, when you go as deep as you've ever been and it's very dark and you can see your watch still glowing up down there, I guess it, it blazes like a flare at that kind of depth. But is is it true that sometimes divers use the markings on the dial to orient themselves so they know which way is up effectively, or is that just a bit of a myth? Uh, you cannot really see where it's up. Uh, the, 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 the only way to, to see where up and down, if you have lost of sense of direction, is to blow a few bubbles, because if you blow a few bubbles, the bubble always go up. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, but with the, the watch, it, it won't work. But a watch that glows strong, you can, for example, um, light something. Yeah? Uh, you don't need even to be a diver to do that. Uh, you know, you're in your bed, you have a, a watch with a lot of uh, glow on it. You can uh, almost uh, read a book with it if you put it very close. Yeah? Yeah, true enough. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. You can, I guess, use them as a, as a torch on occasions. Yeah, I mean, a uh, very short distance, but uh, five or ten centimeters, you can uh, light up uh, the part of the page of a book. Uh, I'm sure uh, all the people listening to us are going to do that tonight. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd love to take it down so deep that it was uh, like that beneath the water, because I think a lot of us are kind of obsessed with Loom. I'm not sure why it speaks to some kind of uh, child within me, I guess, why I like it so much. I just always liked things that glowed in the dark when I was a kid. But Yeah, it's totally magical. Eh? Uh, sure. you, you know, like on the surface, and especially like if you live in a city, as I do, it's very rarely dark, dark. You know, when you're in real nature in the wilderness and you, you are reminded what darkness really looks and feels like, then the watches that we're so used to sort of giving a rather average performance in these kind of half-lights turn out to be amazing, amazing glow bugs on the wrist. Yeah, exactly. Because I live in a place where there's uh, minimal light pollution. And uh, indeed, if you do a walk at night, uh, you look at the watch, it's like bright, bright, bright blue. Amazing. So talking of watches still, you are an ambassador for Ulysse Nadan. And I guess that you wear some of their watches regularly and have a favorite perhaps? Or the dive watch, eh? of course, because um, it's, a, it's a tool watch for me. Uh, I, usually, when I dive, I use uh, or uh, the, the 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 diver forty four or the the chronometer the chronograph uh, forty four. Uh, depends what I'm doing, and uh, one is uh, fitted with um, uh, the the metal band, the titanium band, and the other one with the the recycle strap, and uh, it works great for me. Uh, it's very readable, and uh, yeah. It's, it's 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 perfect on the wrist. That's that's what I use on a on a daily basis as a tool watch. Everything I do in the water, on the boat, uh, go sailing. It's one of uh, these two watches. And uh, of course, sometimes uh, out of the water, uh, uh, I put on some of uh, the other watch that are more like uh, you know not uh, tool watches, and uh, they have really amazing movements. Uh, sometimes I put on the the Freak X. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like hypnotizing. Eh? You can look at that <laughs> movement for hours. Uh, yeah, it's 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 totally fascinating. And uh, even on the dive watcher, sometimes I just remove it, turn around, and look through the the glass uh, bottom and, and check the movement. It's always magical. You know, in terms of, um, I always liked uh, things that work with the power of nature. Like that's why I love sailing so much and. Um, an automatic watch is just powered by gravity. And uh, and in our world where everything is battery powered and needs a lot of power, uh, an automatic watch is uh, is really a statement. Uh, yeah, it really is. It's a, a lovely statement of sustainability as well, I think, uh, in this throwaway culture that we have. The craftsmanship and, I mean, the, the, the people making these watch, you know, I've been a few times to the manufacturer and when you see these people assembling all these little things, all the parts made there, uh, you need very skilled people. So you, I mean, everybody is, is uh, uses its full potential 
and uh, to have skilled workers like that that are proud to work for that industry, it's something uh, that we're losing a bit everywhere. Yeah, I think you're right. It needs to be protected. I, I believe that watchmaking was recently granted uh, UNESCO status as a, a culture in its own right. So hopefully it will get a lot more um, a lot more attention, a lot more funding as well for new people getting into the industry. Where I'm from um, in the United Kingdom, though, there aren't many watchmakers trained every year at all. Mm-hmm. In the British School of Watchmaking, there are maybe, I think, 12 students a year now or, or somewhere wow. thereabouts. When I, when I graduated, it was only six. And uh, that was... Yeah, really not enough to sustain the interest in watches because there are so many watches. Of course, there are so many dive watches out there. My favorite uh, Ulysse Nadam watch is the the blue 42mm diver. Um, I believe the reference is 8163175-93. I love the uh, old radium loom, we would call it, I suppose, on the markings. Yeah, yeah, the color of that one is just stunning. It's beautiful, isn't it? How it all matches with the print on the dial and then the date wheel is all color matched. And also the good thing, it's okay, it looks a bit uh, vintage, but it still has some modern codes, uh, not to go fully, you know, in that retro uh, tendency. Uh, It just add a little touch of retro, but keep... um, a modern form factor. Yeah, it's a very cool watch. You know, it's a bit of a contentious issue within the watch community. The use of this—they uh, call it faux radium or faux rad or faux tina—on yeah. the on the markings and on the hands, and a lot of people are violently against it. I absolutely really? love it. Well, yeah, because they see it as disingenuous. They see it as trying to like give the impression of age. Whereas I, I never really looked at it as any more than a color. Like it has that nod to the past, of yes. course, but it's just gorgeous. And it's also, uh, I mean, more more discreet type of loom. It's not as strong. And uh, sometimes it's better not to have it uh, too strong. And, yeah. Uh, I think it's a good retro feel without having the full retro watch uh, like some, some manufacturer do, like the copy of a very old watch, which doesn't really make sense for me. No, I think that... I prefer you- a very old watch, the true thing. But to buy an old new watch, I don't really get the thing. I think that it's a nice fusion what UN have managed to do with this watch. I was really surprised when I first saw it because I suppose Ulysse um, Nadan had a great reputation early in my career for the experiments with silicon, with models like the Freak, like yeah. you uh, like you spoke of. And that was really all we knew about it because it isn't still, especially in the UK, it's not a mainstream brand. It's something that you would know about if you're into watches, of course, but not if you're just someone on the street. They're not a high street brand is not seen in the windows of many retailers and whatnot. So coming across this watch for the first time, I was thrilled because it's so unusual to have um, novelty within the dive watch canon because so many watches are just trying to look like a Rolex Submariner. And this one with its concave bezel and the kind of cog teeth around the edge of it, I would say the really significant teeth and this lovely textured dial, it was a revelation. I think it's an absolutely fantastic watch. I, I don't have one, but I have often considered it, and it might join my collection at some point. Yeah, cool. Yeah, but the good thing with Elis Nada, they, they, they're not afraid to, to do what they want to do, and uh, usually it works. And uh, there's always people following that, uh, something that's not just a fashion tendency or, or anything like that. And, uh, of course, when you, you like watches, you know about Elis Nada, but... Uh, indeed, amongst my friends, it's only the one that were really interested in watches that that know the brand. And uh, most of people would, would buy even a Rolex or a, 
a tiger or something like that uh, wouldn't know the brand. Yeah, quite so. So, you know, a lot of these brands in watchmaking are kind of lovely little secrets almost for us to have and to enjoy uh, within the community. But I've always felt that it it's not really fair. Like everybody should, everybody deserves to know about this stuff because it's so interesting and it's uh, it's great to watch these different brands do their different thing and push the industry in different directions. So um, next question, uh, you've uh, had a long career in diving. You've met a lot of people, I'm sure. Do you have any heroes within the sport or outside of it from other sporting walks of life or science or adventure or whatnot? I've never had real heroes, but since I'm a kid, I've, of course, I grew up with the, the, the Cousteau stuff because it was in my era. Uh, then uh, the shark in Joe's, huh, of course, because I was born in 72. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the the shark for me was uh, the hero of the movie. I was like five years old when <laughs> I was out. I'm, I'm from what I call the Joe's generation because in my people of my age, usually all they love sharks uh, like me, all they hate it and they cannot even swim in open water without the fear of uh, of having a shark eating them. Uh, so it, it was for me something very important. I think the, the, the shark in Joe's really probably pushed me towards that path a lot. Um, and of course, science in general, always like that. My, my godfather uh, my, was my uh, father, best friend, was a scientist. He was a, a genetician. Uh, so I always liked uh, science in general. Uh, so for me, it's, it's my heroes are more the the, the way uh, humans go further, push the the boundaries. Um, it's more like that. And then, of course, during my career, I met a lot of people and work with a lot of people I would never dream I would work with because they were like kind of uh, these people from my childhood. So uh, when you are working in a very uh, specific field. Uh, it's a very, very small world. I, I think you have that with the watchmaking as well. You always meet the same people, the true passionate people. And uh, so it's a very small community. And uh, we all try to have our own path. It sounds like the the field of freediving and watchmaking do align very comfortably. Um, and so the collaboration between you and Ulysse Nadan makes a lot of sense, which is a nice thing because we, we see a lot of collaborations with certain athletes or um, professionals in other fields that don't feel as genuine as this one does to me. But how did it come about? Did, did Ulysse Nadan approach you or vice versa? Uh, for me, I mean, when I collaborate with a brand, it's, it's very important that it makes sense for both sides. Uh, for example, if uh, Tesla was contacting me uh, tomorrow uh, for collaboration, I will tell them to go to hell, for example. You know, for <laughs> me, I need to, to stay in my value in terms of environmental uh, things and, and also moral values. It's very important. And uh, the, the collaboration uh, with Elise Nadin started uh, because many years ago, I met uh, Patrick Pruneau, the, the CEO, mm-hmm. when he was working for Tiger back then. And uh, he's a freediver himself and a watch enthusiast. And um, I did a, a freediving course with him and a few friends. That was like 12, 12 years ago or something. And back then, uh, I think I had the uh, AWC Cousteau with me for diving. And so we started talking about watches. And then we, we, we kept in touch. And uh, in 2018, uh, we were on the phone. He said, oh, by the way, um, I'm starting working for... Um, 
Ulysse Nardin, and we're looking for uh, people to work with. Uh, would you be interested? And back then, I didn't have any um, partnership with uh, with watch uh, brands. I was doing sometimes some conservation work with Blancpain, but not on a regular basis. And so uh, I went to the manufacturer and met the people, and, and very quickly, I think on both sides, it, it clicked. And uh, with their strong uh, marine heritage, uh, these values, the, the, the fact they wanted to go more into um, ocean conservation, uh, it, it was a uh, right timing. And uh, the, the partnership is evolving. At that, we, we work with um, marine scientists I collaborate with. So, so it seems it's, uh, it's a growing partnership in the way we, uh, we really go into uh, conservation and we're trying to make it meaningful. Of course, it's not easy for a brand. Uh, the, the, the frontier is very thin between uh, doing actual conservation work and, and saying you do conservation work. And uh, in my case, I mean, I'm really involved. Like two days ago, we were tagging sharks uh, together with a scientist who's also supported by Ulysse Nardin here in Azores. And so we, we really do the work uh, on the field. We are there on the field to try to make a difference. Do you think you might find yourself getting more involved with the product design itself, you know, lending your experience to, to the brand, or maybe designing your own watch from scratch? Has that ever crossed your mind? Yeah, we, we, we talk sometimes uh, about design uh, features. Um, uh, it happened. Uh, we, we started uh, two years ago to work on a, on a project on, on a watch. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, yes, because, of course, they've asked me, uh, you know, it's a uh, it's, it's, um, two-way relationship. They say, oh, what would you like? What would be the ideal watch for you to, to have for diving? And so I say, yeah, maybe that and that. And so... You know, it takes time, but uh, maybe eventually one day we'll have uh, something cool. That would be very, very nice. And in that same vein, what other kinds of things would you like to see from the watchmaking industry? I notice that there are a lot of brands now trying to bring in some more sustainable materials. Um, I know Breitling worked with uh, Kelly Slater to do the uh, Econil straps uh, with his brand. And I've seen Gaia watches from the Netherlands recently, all made from recycled ocean plastics. What kind of things do you think like fit with the cons- conservation? What kind of things do you think fit with the kind of conservation you're interested in, and also the luxury landscape of watchmaking? I think in terms of materials, probably for the the bracelet and strap, uh, these recycled cycling plastic is a very good thing mm-hmm. um, because you know these straps they age quite quickly on a watch if you use it a lot. Uh, so having uh, material made from uh, nets or fishing lines it's a very very good idea also it's you know it helps people to understand uh, that we have a big uh, plastic problem in the ocean uh, but also the watch themselves I mean uh, a mechanical watch it's already kind of sustainable by itself because you know uh, it will last forever uh, you pass it from generation to generation uh, you see this famous ad from uh, a very well-known brand that you never <laughs> own it to pass it through the next generation. And it's the case. No, I still have my, my father passed away 15 years ago, but I still have a watch from him. And you just need to go every five, 10 years um, to, to, to do a little service and that watch will keep on working. So if that's not sustainable, what is more sustainable than that? Right. Um, 
you know, like me, for example, uh, the car I drive, uh, I drive the most sustainable car in the world. And I'm going to shock people when I'm going to tell them what it is. <laughs> it's an old pickup truck from Toyota made in 86. And that thing is on the road since 86. I'm the second <laughs> owner. You just put a bit of oil, a bit of diesel, and that thing works. You don't need to change any parts, any electronics. It's already as offset is CO2 uh, from the build uh, 35 years ago. And that thing is the most sustainable car you can have. Uh, so you have to rethink really about what is sustainability and what marketing is trying to 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 tell us about sustainability. You know, you have to really think deeply about that. Yeah, I think that's all of our responsibilities. And I'm glad to see that watchmaking is really starting to face up to that reality and being a little bit more vocal about it. And as long as the changes made, like you said, are meaningful and not just paying lip service to the many environmental crises the earth is facing at the moment, then that can only be a good thing. Yeah, no, in, in my case, I know we, we do real work. Uh, the help funding, uh, tagging project um, I'm working on. And, and so we really do uh, work in the ocean. I mean, I don't say every day I'll go work for them for the ocean, but it's probably 50 days a, a year that I'm in the water tagging shark with, uh, in support of, uh, with the support of Elisander, which, uh, which is very good for us uh, on the field. That is genuinely amazing. And it's really, really nice to hear because, you know, these kind of things, they are communicated to us as the press, but they're certainly not the loudest message that is sent to the readership of Fratello or any watch consumers, because sometimes, you know, the most important things are just lost in the in the noise of luxury and status and these other pursuits, which aren't really as I think interesting or um, necessary to the furtherance of the human race. Yeah, but you know, also in the indeed in the press material, you get uh, sometimes I have input in that because uh, sometimes it goes a bit. Uh, I mean, the the, the way uh, a brand can communicate about things, it's maybe not the way that people on the field would like, you know. And so yeah. uh, sometimes we talk about what we're going to release and and keep it um, okay for everyone. And uh, I think it's it's a nice intention from. Uh, their side that we communicate about what we're going to communicate also with the pictures i always try to choose the picture i'm going to 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 give them to use uh for the way we communicate because you know a picture is so easy to take out of context you can have one picture that's really outstanding but if you don't have a full explanation behind it it can be misinterpreted so um it's always a work we have to do uh to release picture and press release that makes sense on both sides that's very true very true and i'm glad that you have that kind of input because it really helps i think watch brands always need to listen to outside voices no but they listen very much and that, that's why i like the relationship with Ulysse Nardin is that uh, we really collaborate it's uh, it's really both sides it does sound like a perfect fit so tell me last question what more adventures do you have planned this year alone and with the brand so you know with covid uh, thing changed a lot for us um, uh, i mean for me for people like me you know i'm working a lot with um, documentary production and all that got totally stopped uh, one and a half year ago because uh, of traveling and countries uh, closing the borders we had a six-week shoot for a shark uh, documentary production that had to take part in australia it won't happen uh, so there's a lot of things changing uh, so I, I focus more on the local work here in Azores, where I spend most of my time. Uh, so now it's full season. Uh, it's the summer season when we have uh, all the manta rays, mobula rays, blue sharks, where we put tags on them. Uh, then the next uh, trip should be um, in uh, Cocos Island uh, for something about the 
plastic uh, in the ocean. And that will be together with another um, a collaborator of, um, of Elise Narda, uh, Ben Lecomte, which is the guy who swam across the Pacific Ocean to raise awareness on plastic. And uh, it's not a project by Elise Narda, but we, we came together on that project. And then I uh, have uh, another film shoot for shark documentary in Madagascar on whale sharks. Uh, but I, I, I saw even before the COVID, uh, I'm trying to slow down the travel also and um, do less expedition, but more meaningful ones and try to slow down the, um, the travel and be more doing local things. I'm sure that'll keep you very busy. Uh, anyway, I mean, no traveling is, uh, it, it brings with it a whole new set of things to, to think about and to concern ourselves with. Yeah, but with the COVID, uh, you know, you discover things that are near your, your home huh? uh, because you have no choice. So you dig more into what you can do locally. And in fact, there's tons of stuff. I don't say we have to totally stop traveling and, and, and doing projects uh, somewhere else. But uh, I think we, do, we can do most of the time things uh, more locally. Fred, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was an eye-opener, to say the least. Your knowledge and experience of freediving, I'm sure, will be as fascinating to our listeners as it was for me to hear, because hearing about how these watches are actually used in the environment and the things that you prioritize is uh, just really, really fascinating stuff. So thanks. Thanks again. Thank you very much. 